welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I'm your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gilded and Dusty Texas. It was a place of legend and sorrow and history and future modernity. The largest state throughout this period, Alaska would remain a territory until much later, the state of Texas seemed to embody all the contradictions and messiness of a country both trying to manage its diverse parts and perhaps also to suppress their reality. But what was the real state like? And how much did both real and mythic Texas influence both the state and American identity? With me today to discuss the Lone Star State's part in this fascinating era is Dr. Brian Cervantes of Tarrant County College. Brian, welcome. Thank you for uh, for having me for this uh, excellent podcast. I uh, enjoy this podcast, and so I'm uh, very um, grateful that uh, you've extended this opportunity to me to uh, join and talk about uh, one of the things I love talking about the most, and that is Texas history. Pleasure is all mine, and I'm flattered. So let's start uh, with a question which I get the feeling is going to be my go-to question in this series. Let us imagine an, uh, a would-be Alexis de Tocqueville wants to visit and tour Texas to understand its culture, society, economy, and politics in the beginning of this period, somewhere in the middle, and toward the end. What would they see in all three cases? What would have changed? And what would have stayed the same? Excellent question there, and I think that really touches a lot on uh, you know, some of the major uh, themes that Texas historians really look at when they look at this uh, Gilded Age era. You know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, post-bellum, post-Civil War period, uh, a lot of uh, Texas and, and, and Southern historians, by extension, um, really ask the questions uh, relating to change and continuity, right? Uh, you know, what changed as a result of the Civil War? What uh, continuity did you see? And, you know, uh, how much do you see change and continuity in that uh, whole, you know, what we think of as the, the Gilded Age there in the late 19th century? And, you know, it's, it's interesting with, with Texas because with Texas you have a state that, um, you know, at least in, in the modern era, and especially starting in the second half of the 20th century and, and into the present, you have a state that, uh, you know, oftentimes has a reputation for being very uh, kind of forward-looking, right? A, a state that, you know, if it um, is thinking about the past, it, it's thinking about what we often think of as the kind of mythic frontier past, right? A, uh, a place of uh, wide open spaces and the uh, a space for... Um, kind of a you know stoic, solid individuals to to triumph over over nature maybe right. Uh, we think of the images of the cowboys and and things of that nature. Um, but if you look at Texas and Texans during this Gilded Age period, you, you see a very different kind of mentality among Texans, um, and and it's largely as a result of the Civil War experience. Um, and you can't really talk about late 19th century Texas without talking about that uh, Civil War and, and, and Reconstruction experience. Because uh, while on the one hand Texans uh, did not necessarily feel the direct brunt of the Civil War in the way that, say, you know, Virginia or Tennessee or Georgia might have, you know, only a very you know, small handful of, of battles were fought on Texas soil and those were you know, skirmishes at, at best by and large, um, 
even though they didn't feel the direct brunt of the war, you know, Texans did contribute quite a bit to the war. You know, tens of thousands of Texans, you know, fought um, in Arkansas and Virginia and other places like that. And uh, obviously, uh, the Texans on the home front felt the effects of the war. And then after Civil War, you do have Union troops in Texas, and you have, you know, Reconstruction as something that is directly affecting Texans. Um, uh, whether white or black uh, or Hispanic Texans. Um, so what you end up seeing is that in the late 19th century, a lot of uh, Texans, especially you know white Texans, uh, are very kind of backward looking in the sense of um, reaching back to that Civil War experience. Uh, for you know for a lot of those Texans, say in the 1880s and 1890s, especially, Maybe you have many of those, you know, coming of age in that era who did not obviously participate in the war itself. Maybe they were too young to participate, but their fathers did and their grandfathers did. And so you do have a whole lot of 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 kind of this idea of, of keeping the, the memory of those uh, of the Civil War alive. And, you know, this is when you really see um the lost cause, this uh, kind of a civic religion of uh, holding up the uh, participants in the Civil War as, uh, as almost uh, saints. Uh, you, you see this kind of a lost cause cult arise uh, at this time. Um, so in, the, in that one sense, uh, you know, Texans and the Texas identity is very wrapped up in that event of the, of the very recent past. Um, so if you were traveling through the, the, through Texas at this time, you know, as you mentioned, you know, kind of in the beginning, in the middle, or towards the end, uh, one thing I think a traveler would see over the course of that time is the development of more and more of a conscious memory of that war. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, in the 1890s and early uh, 1900s that we really begin to see, for example, uh, the development of a lot of uh, monuments to Civil War soldiers in the uh, town squares of a lot of uh, Texas towns and cities. Uh, you know, it's not something you see immediately after the war. It takes a few decades for that movement to really take off. So I think you would see, um, you would definitely see change in that regard, more of a conscious uh, memory of the uh, of the past. Um, but you would also see, um, you know, changes in uh, in other ways. Um, you would also see, uh, you know, change in, in the fact that Texas is slowly but surely becoming more urban. Uh, you know, Texas definitely has a very rural identity. And it, it's very interesting, e even today, you know, when Texas is, you know, an, an incredibly urbanized state, you know, there is still kind of a, an, a rural identity that a lot of Texans hold on to. Uh, and in the Gilded Age, um, Texas, unlike, say, a lot of the rapidly industrializing states of the Northeast and Midwest, you know, Texas still is a, an incredibly rural state. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there is a lot of uh, urban growth. This is when uh, cities like uh, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and Fort Worth especially are starting to really emerge as, as at least potential urban powerhouses. You know, they're not necessarily at the status they were in the 20th century, but you can definitely see the, the seeds for that um, future growth. Um, a, a traveler at this time would also um, see some continuity uh, in the sense that, you know, even though you do have this, you know, the, the seeds of urbanization, uh, like I said, Texas is continuing to remain a very heavily rural and agricultural state. Um, let's uh, let's take cotton for example. You know, we, we think of uh, cotton oftentimes as uh, as king of, of the South, if you will, in the uh, antebellum period, and all across the South uh, in, in the post uh, Civil War era, uh, you you see uh, cotton uh, take off even uh, more, uh, where where cotton growth in, in places like Texas uh, increases pretty rapidly uh, in that. Uh, in that period. And so, you know, you, you would see, you know, if, if you were that traveler, right, you would see uh, cotton spread, uh, you know, out of East Texas, where it had been historically before, 
uh, the Civil War, you would see it spread into Central and uh, creeping out into parts of West Texas, especially with the development of, of more uh, modern uh, irrigation techniques. So, you know, in, in that sense, you know, there is some, some continuity there. Uh, so it, it is interesting to look at Texas at this time, just because it is kind of a, a land of contrast in a lot of ways. And, you know, if we had the time, you know, we could probably spend uh, hours upon hours talking about uh, what changes and what doesn't change in, in Texas in the late 19th century. That's a great introduction. Uh, I want to take your point about uh, how residents built up their identity uh, in a slightly different direction. Uh, there's a lot of talk today about making what we call now Juneteenth uh, a federal holiday. But that was a, uh, whether or not that's actually going to happen, and it probably will happen. Um, it's a tradition that started in Texas. And from what I have read on Reconstruction, people tend to talk in terms of Reconstruction and Black identity and struggles. They usually tend to focus on this... Maybe it's not fair to say stereotypical, but the conventionally thought of Upper South and Lower South in Texas is kind of neglected. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how, um, if there were any differences or nuances in which uh, Black Americans living in Texas uh, experienced or thought of themselves and uh, and and how they dealt with the 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 tragic collapse of, of Reconstruction and the imposition of uh, Jim Crow rules. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you, you mentioned Juneteenth there, right? Uh, so we can kind of start off with that. And um, what you see is that, you know, Juneteenth uh, very quickly becomes a, uh, a part of the identity uh, of black Texans. As a matter of fact, um, it was in uh, in Austin, uh, Texas, you know, already the capital of Texas, uh, where the um, where Juneteenth uh, really, you know, takes root as early as 1867. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Freedmen's Bureau is, uh, you know, kind of directed the whole establishment of, of Juneteenth as a celebration, in, you know, that early, and and you already see by the early 1870s that it spreads across the state um, to become a a major uh, holiday for uh for black texans and you know you see this in small towns and big cities i mean it, it was definitely um, a major community event for uh, a lot of black texans so um, it's something that really takes root very very quickly um and, and just became a part of of you know the identity for you know over the course of coming decades um to where it just became a part of the, the fabric of, of of black texan society and so, you know, in, on the one hand, you know, it speaks to the potential of Reconstruction, right? In the sense that, um, you know, Reconstruction holds out uh, great possibilities for, uh, for black Texans to be more uh, active in, um, in civic life, right? Um, you know, we do see uh, black Texans voting, you know, by uh, 1860, uh, by 1868, right? And uh, therefore, a few years, black Texans are active in, in helping shape, uh, you know, state government uh, in in the state of Texas, and uh, really becoming a core part, like, like they are, you know, across the South at this time, becoming a, a core part of the uh, Republican Party. Uh, but that only lasts for really for you know less than a decade. Uh, by uh, by uh, 1876, what we see is um, what was uh, called by a, a lot of white Texans at the time the, the redemption, quote unquote, of Texas, uh, the redemption of Texas from uh, what they saw as corrupt Republican, corrupt black rule because they were. You know, because, you know, like I said, Republicans were in the driver's seat there for a few years. And so um, while that doesn't necessarily lead to the um, overnight uh, removal uh, of black Texans from voting, you know, the, the obviously that, that redemption uh, of Texas, as, as uh, like I said, many uh, white, especially Democrats called it at the time, uh, does set in motion events that over the course of the the next uh you know two or uh, two and a half decades would would lead to um the implementation of uh, uh the disfranchisement of black texans right which really um 
it really is solidified with the passage of some election laws in 1902-1904. Uh, we get the passage of some uh, election laws which really do limit the ability of black Texans to participate in, uh, in voting especially by the establishment of what was called the white primary, which uh, was a state law that allowed for the political parties to have um, white-only primaries. Um, and since Texas was, by the you know, turn of the century, was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a one-party state with the Democrats firmly in control, if you had a whites-only primary in the Democratic Party, um, then... Um, you have effectively you know, disfranchi disfranchised uh, black Texans in, in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, th there is this, this brief moment uh, there, you know, where black Texans are, are poised to be able to, um, you know, take control of their political destinies uh, firmly. And, um, but it's wrested away from them, you know, incredibly quickly. And so coming back to the, you know, issue of Juneteenth, um, in a lot of ways that uh, I think you could make the case that um, that, that strengthens the importance uh, of Juneteenth for a lot of black Texans, right? Because um, it does um, harken back to a, a moment of, uh, of not just of having been emancipated, but to this moment where, you know, you had all of these amazing possibilities, you know, right there in front of you, right? All of the, these, uh, uh, this, this great uh, potential to be a, a fully-fledged part of the political process, and now that's gone. So, you know, during uh, the period of, of Jim Crow, because not only, of course, do you have disfranchisement, but you also have uh, segregation of public spaces and the like. So during that period of, of Jim Crow and disfranchisement, uh, you know, Juneteenth you know, offered not only an opportunity for uh, the black Texan community to gather in towns and cities across the state, but again, also... You know, harken back to that uh, to that moment of promise in the past. Wow, that's that's uh, definitely a lot to chew on and think about. Speaking of very powerful uh, cultural moments, um, one of the things for which Texas is uh, most famous for in this period, and maybe just in general, stereotypically, uh, is obviously the cowboys. Uh, people, uh, primarily men. Uh, who uh, were responsible for driving uh, herds of uh, beef from the uh, regions of Texas and uh, and elsewhere uh, up to Chicago, where uh, they could feed the rapidly growing cities in the uh, in the Midwest and the Northeast. Um, I so I thought I might ask you first of all, how many people were we talking about? Uh, what was their, uh, who was the kind of person who would tend to show up to be a cowboy? Um, and how is it that, how is it that this specific profession out of so many other, uh, uh, entrepreneurial professions of this period, I mean, you had people who, who, who would like go into mines and, 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 and do homesteading and yet, uh, it's it's specifically this kind of uh, this kind of person, this kind of individual that just captured the minds of everyone, even around the world. Yeah, it's a, a good question, and there's a, really a lot of um, a lot of layers to that question, right? And, and um, let's let's talk just a little bit about how um, how how they captured the imagination, right? Because um, on the one hand. There weren't necessarily a lot of, you know, what, what we would think of as those stereotypical cowboys, right? This was not something in which you have, you know, even close to a majority of Texas workers involved in, right? This is something that is primarily um, in uh, on, the, on the ranches of, of South Texas, where a lot of these uh, longhorn cattle were being found and rounded up, cattle that were descended from, you know, the herds that Spanish... Um, the Spanish had brought over hundreds of years before, and so you have all of these, you know, no kidding, millions of, of longhorn cattle just roaming uh, South Texas, and they need to be taken somewhere by the uh, post-Civil War era, like you mentioned, right? And uh, ultimately, they're being transported to the uh, meatpacking plants of, of the North for a uh, beef-hungry nation after the Civil War. 
Um, so, you know, you have, you know, what are, you know, in the thousands of individuals who are cowboys, not necessarily, like I said, a whole lot. Um, but it's interesting, it's in the late 19th century that you begin to see the, the romanticizing of this uh, of this life, kind of like it's in the late 19th century where you begin to see the, the romanticizing of of you know what we think of as the uh, the old west right um you know with the uh, things like uh uh you know uh, buffalo bills wild west show and things of that nature and you have uh you know dime store uh, uh dime novels right uh you know uh, praising the heroics of cowboys you already have in the eight, mid 1880s uh, theodore roosevelt um kind of buying into that uh romanticized myth of the cowboy and uh, even if it's not specifically Texas Cowboys, just looking at Cowboys in general. So, you know, it's definitely something that very quickly kind of grabs the imagination of a lot of, uh, of not just Americans, but ultimately the imaginations of a lot of uh, people worldwide. And um, uh, really, uh, you know, I think a lot of it just has to do with... Um, with the uh, kind of seeing it as a, the triumph of the individual, right? You know, there is a, a very strong uh, individualistic strain to the American uh, identity already. And uh, cowboys uh, here in the uh, late 19th century um, are, are definitely in a position to be portrayed as um, kind of being on the cutting edge of that individualistic nature. Uh, and, you know, to drive the point home even further when uh, related to Texas, you know, Texans already are starting to have that um, that individualistic nature, even more so than a lot of uh, other Americans, right? And so Texas Cowboys, you know, that there you have the, the ultimate triumph of the individual over, uh, over nature, over the frontier. Um, so while not necessarily a whole lot of people got to participate in that kind of life, they're, they're definitely held up as a kind of ideal. And um, it's something that is uh, biracial. Uh, you know, there, there are, um, you know, uh, estimates of uh, upwards of 25 to, to 30, 35 percent of uh, Texas Cowboys at this time who are um, African-American. Um, so it is uh, a, a biracial experience. But at the same time, um, the era of this cowboy, as we think of it, you know, this heroic individual on the frontier, you know, herding these uh, herds of uh, thousands upon thousands of cattle is a, is a relatively short period. Um, like you said, after the Civil War, right, there is a lot of demand for, uh, for beef. Um, especially in the Northeast and the Midwest, and Texas just happens to have a, a supply of, of beef. It just has to get to the packing plants of Chicago. Um, so what you see is uh, by 1866, you, you begin to see um, cattle drives, right? Uh, these these uh, cattle being driven out of South Texas, and initially they're, they're being driven to um, some of the railheads in Kansas uh, or Missouri. And um, as the white settlement pushed further and further west, uh, you see um, cattle drives moving further and further west, right? Because, you know, if you're, you can't really be driving herds of thousands of cattle through a bunch of farmland, right? You have to herd them through relatively wide open spaces. Um, so by the late 1860s, a lot of your cattle drives in Texas are going through... Um, either, you know, from, a, if you think of a line kind of down the middle of the state that cuts through Fort Worth and Austin, basically a lot of the cattle drives are going to have to occur west of that by the late 1860s um, to uh, avoid places of, you know, a lot of uh, settlement and farming, right? Um, but again, you know, the destination is primarily railheads of Kansas. Uh, but then by the 1870s, um, a lot of that begins to dwindle. Um, part of that is the introduction of barbed wire, right? Uh, as a, a lot of uh, farmers and uh, things of that nature, you know, they began using barbed wire to keep cattle off of their property, right? They're tired of uh, any cattle, uh, you know, just roaming across their property. Um, so that limits, you know, where cattle drives can go. 
um, you began to see uh, railroads penetrating Texas by the middle of the 1870s. So no longer do the cattle have to be driven long distances through you know, what was then Indian Territory, Oklahoma, and into Kansas and places like that. You, they can be uh, transported uh, via rail from Texas to the meatpacking plants of of the uh, of the Midwest, and and so the period of that uh, of the of the cowboy uh, as uh, you know this heroic figure. You know, if we're being generous, you know, 1866 to maybe 1875, 76, right? So it's not a very long period, but it does last long enough to really capture the imagination of uh, not just Texans, but uh, Americans and just a lot of people around the world. And um, it's something that still lasts to this day. I mean, where I live in, in Fort Worth, um, we uh, one of the major tourist attractions here are the Fort Worth Stockyards, where um, ultimately by 1902, we ended up with uh, two major meatpacking plants being established there in the stockyards, uh, Armour and Swift. Um, but there in the, you know, the stockyards today, where we don't necessarily have cattle being stored or bought and sold or slaughtered, we still have uh, twice a day herds of longhorn being driven uh down the main strip of the stockyards and it brings you know who knows how many thousands of people every year to to watch longhorn cattle being dri driven down the street so it's definitely something that has um kind of remained as a core part of the texas identity um, even though it was something that relatively few texans were able to participate in you touch on a, uh, an important uh, subject at the at the at the end of your your excellent description, and it's something. It's really the reason I got into uh, cover starting to cover the Gilded and Progressive Ages, and that is that this is a period of very very rapid change, relatively speaking. Uh, new technologies, uh, railroads are connecting things. Uh, money is changing markets in the way everybody trades or even the lone farmer in the middle of nowhere calculates how they're going to plan for the next year. And, uh, and indeed, uh, to take one example, in addition to railroads, uh, this is an era of where the great wealth is to be found in resource extraction, whether it be cows or what Texas would be become famous for, especially in the 20th century, oil. Um, and I honestly have to wonder, because you're telling me that a lot of people in Texas at the time uh, were often thinking very romantically, very uh, backward looking in various ways. And I know that a lot of Americans, especially Americans who lived outside of the core industrial areas of the Northeast and the Midwest, were very, very ambivalent about that change. The, you know, a big part of the populist movement kind of felt like they, they weren't very happy about the railroads coming in and changing everything. They weren't very happy about, uh, you know, uh, glo global markets. We talk about globalism today, global markets, and especially Britain, uh, dictating how they lived and, and, and leading to urbanization at various levels. So I honestly wonder, so how did, on the one hand, like you, like you said, all these changes uh, made things easier for Texans. They may have made many of them wealthier, given them jobs, but it also led to a lot of displacement. And I wonder, where does Texas fit in there? Were they the kind of people who, like, for instance, there were th thinkers in the South who said, no, everybody has to stay on the farm and to hell with, mo uh, with modernity? Uh, were they more like the Northeast and the Midwest, or did they kind of straddle the line? Interesting question. Yeah, I mean, Texas, you know, Texas does play an interesting um, role when it comes to, say, railroads and the populist movement both, you know, which, you know, you definitely touched on um, kind of the effect that railroads had on uh, market forces, right? And that in turn affects the rise of the populist movement by the 1890s. Um, and I will say that, that uh, Texas is one of the um, places where the uh, populist movement um, really does uh, kind of take root, uh, not to the point of necessarily being able to, uh, to you know, not necessarily able to dominate you know, state politics per se, um, but uh, the, the populist movement is definitely something that 
Texans really kind of take the lead in. Um, and then there for a little while, you know, there is this uh, thought that uh, the populace might be able to challenge uh, the Democratic Party for uh, control of, of state politics. And, and a lot of it had to do with that change, right? Um, you know, one of the things that populists and the forerunners of populists were very uh, upset about um, were the railroads, right? On, on the one hand, uh, populists and their predecessors and a lot of Texans in general were very happy and excited about railroads, right? Um, you know, towns and communities would uh, do whatever they could to make sure the railroad came through their community, right? Because they understood that uh, the railroad coming to town um, could give them that link to the outside world, could connect them to those markets that could, uh, you know, both supply, you know, more consumer goods as well as allow more of an outlet for their own pro the agri primarily agricultural products. Um, so there's the love part of that relationship, but then you have the hate um, because then the, the more Texans were reliant on railroads and the more Texans were linked to the global and national and global market, then obviously there are, um, you know, forces in, in those uh, national and global markets that can have a, you know, maybe a negative effect, right? That now, the, the more connected you are to a national or global market, the more you will feel the effects of, say, downturns in those markets, right? Um, so it, it leads to this love-hate relationship with railroads, and you know, and Texas, a lot of Texas farmers, is like a lot of uh, farmers across the uh, uh, the West and the Midwest at the time. Um, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, believed that uh, railroads were engaged in a lot of negative behaviors. You know, many of them uh, accused railroads of of discriminating um, between various kinds of shippers. You know, argued that railroads might be um, charging, you know, say, farmers uh, unfair rates compared to, say, other kinds of shippers. Um, you know, many of them accused, uh, you know, railroads of engaging in, um, you know, collusion with one another, providing poor service, you know, things of that nature. So you, you have a lot of, of uh, you know, excitement about the railroads, you know, but then at the same time, uh, a lot of growing dislike of the railroads. And, and so you see this, you know, really kind of taking off in the 1870s as railroads really began to um, penetrate more deeply and uh, spread more widely throughout the state, and, and it kind of peaks in the 1890s. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, one of the things this leads to in the state of Texas is um, a uh, move to uh, provide more uh, government regulation of railroads across the state. Um, it, it was believed that since the Pardon me. It was believed that since the railroads oftentimes benefited from um, the state government of Texas giving away a lot of public land, because that's one of the things that Texas did to attract a lot of railroads was gave away you know millions of acres of, of land to the to the railroads. Uh, it was believed that well, if the railroads are going to be getting this public land from the state government of Texas, uh, then it stood to reason that the state government of Texas should therefore regulate the railroads. And so we end up with, by the 1890s, the creation of uh, what's called the Texas Railroad Commission, uh, which is a, a, a state agency designed to regulate the railroads. Now, you know, in, in practice, the Texas Road Commission doesn't necessarily, you know, do a heck of a lot uh, about uh, the railroads. Um, it's not necessarily a very... You know, what we might think of as heavy-handed kind of regulatory body, uh, but it does speak to uh, kind of the extent to which you know Texans really believed that there was some level of government intervention uh, needed when it comes to that. Uh, interestingly enough, the Texas Road Commission is still around today, uh, though it really doesn't have anything to do with railroad regulation nowadays. Uh, now the, the Texas Road Commission uh, primarily regulates the uh, oil and gas industry, which is kind of funny when you think about it, um, but but nevertheless, um, you know, you do have a lot of this animosity towards railroads that uh, kind of spills over by the 1890s, and uh, th that, you know, connects with, um, 
into the populist, right? The populist uh, movement, the populist party in general by the 1890s is frustrated um, at what they feel is the, uh, really the, just the, uh, what they see as the farmers being left behind, right? They, they, they see that the trend, the national trend, uh, seems to be towards industrialization and urbanization and the uh, glorifying of urban life. And, uh, you know, with Chicago, New York, and other uh, major uh, urban areas being uh, hailed as kind of the uh, leading edge of American, uh, of American society, the American economy, and where are the farmers in all of this, right? Um, and so a lot of farmers are frustrated at these changes. They, they see the growing power of the railroads that they have to rely on. Um, they look at the uh, the issue of of, of say uh, of money. You know how the United States is remaining on the gold standard, which leads to uh, uh, really the trend of deflation, which is you know the opposite of what we're experiencing right now. And a lot of farmers, especially Texas farmers, believed that um, inflating the money supply would lead to the inflating of food prices, which would of course benefit a lot of farmers, right? Um, so they, they wanted to see a reversing of the of the deflationary trends. They wanted to see uh, moving away from the gold standard. They wanted to see uh, stronger, stricter regulation of railroads you know, because they see the, the nation just changing so rapidly. And the more it changes, then the less power, uh, political and economic power, that the farmers have. Um, and so Texans are like the like farmers across the rest of the country in, in that regard, and that they uh, are going to try to attempt to organize politically in some ways, whether it's through the uh, uh, auspices of the Democratic Party or in some cases, you know, moving out to join a third party like the Populist Party um, to see what could be done to maybe reverse those trends. Wow. So that, that's a great uh, picture. You mentioned how the Texan farmers were very much like uh, other uh, farmers across the country, and you make a very convincing case for it. I thought I might um, move a little bit sharply to a question I want to ask. Um, uh, nowadays, um, the the America's southern border, ever since it, uh, ever since Texas was made a republic. And then next to the United States and so forth, uh, has been a, a a constant, strange uh, combination of, on the other hand, cultural exchange and trade, and on the other hand, a lot of animosity. Uh, at the end of this period, for instance, the most extreme case being uh, the uh, the raid of Pancho Villa into the United States uh, during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, I thought I might ask you a bit about how exactly. Did Texans think about the reality that the area that they lived in was suffused with the traditions of Spaniards and then uh, later Mexicans uh, in their various forms in terms of cultural institutions, uh, in terms of geography, uh, and the fact that the, the, the border, we talk about how lawless, uh, some people talk about how lawless it is now was far more so uh, in this period, you have the Texas Rangers and stuff like that. How did they, how did they deal with that uh, ambiguity and ambivalence? Um, it, it's interesting, you know, one, one thing that does set, say, Texas apart from uh, other, you know, southern states at the time, um, and notice how I tend to at this time think of Texas more of a southern as opposed to a, a western state, uh, which is, of course, a discussion for another um, long podcast episode. Um, but one thing that does set Texas apart, right, is that uh, is not only that having that border um, with, with Mexico, but also the fact that, you know, whereas you know, most of the rest of the South is, is biracial, right, uh, with white and, uh, and black Southerners residing there, you know, Texas does have a, um, a sizable Hispanic population at the time. Now, it, it the, the Hispanic population of Texas in the uh, in in the Gilded Age was much smaller than it than it uh, would grow to be. As a matter of fact, you know, say in um, you know eighteen ninety you know nineteen hundred, we're talking about 
um, Hispanic Texans forming, you know, maybe five to six percent of the total state population. Um, and just for, you know, point of reference, it's almost 40 percent today. Um, so it's, it's much smaller and it's also more heavily concentrated in uh, South Texas. Uh, there uh, in the South Texas counties uh, bordering uh, Mexico uh, on up to, you know, maybe as far north as, you know, San Antonio and places like that. Um, so it is a, a much smaller Hispanic population. Um, but at the same time, you know, Texans were very conscious of that Spanish uh, and Mexican heritage of the state. Um, but it, you also see um, a lot of glossing over uh, of that heritage. As a matter of fact, it, whenever you see um, histories being written of Texas at this time, you know, say around the turn of the century, um, there's, you know, kind of a general like, yeah, the Spanish were here and, you know, they did some things. But really, the, the real history of the state begins um, with with the Texas Revolution, when uh, when Anglo's were finally able to to wrest control of of uh, of of Texas from the, of the Mexicans, and that's when it you know it, you know, the true story of Texas really begins. Um, so again, there's there's you know recognition of that, um, but at the same time, not something they really wanted to spend um, a, a whole lot of time talking about. Um, in, in a lot of ways, you know, that the border was a, an area. Uh, that that could be, um, you know, the the scene of, of some lawlessness, right? You know, one of the uh, things that uh, Texas Rangers are active in doing uh, is not just in, engaging in, you know, fights on the frontier, but you also see uh, Texas Rangers involved in uh, some, um, you know, peacekeeping, if you will, there uh, along the border with Mexico, though again, maybe not as much as you would see later in the 20th century. Um, one of the things that does kind of keep the border from becoming as lawless as it would by the uh, 20th century is that Mexico does experience some level of, of stability in, in the uh, late 19th century. Um, this is a period when um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Porfirio Diaz is the uh, president of Mexico. Um, he is, you know, but by and large, uh, effectively, you know, rules Mexico as a dictator. Um, and um, and so Mexico is not necessarily a place of upheaval until we get to the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Um, and and it, it's in that period of revolution uh, during the decade of the 1910s where you have individuals like uh, Pancho Villa um, who are engaged in uh, raids across the border. Uh, and that Mexican Revolution of 1910, you know, puts a lot of things into motion. It, uh, you know, it, it, it changes the political direction of Mexico. It um, really uh, changes the uh, Hispanic um, population of Texas because uh, you know, tens of thousands of of uh, Mexicans fled the violence of the Mexican Revolution and settled in states like Texas, um, and it and it does uh, bring a lot of violence to that border region, right? Because as Mexico um, becomes consumed by revolution, then much of that border region also just kind of falls apart, and so you end up with border raids. Um, you know, you end up with a lot of um, you know that violence in that border region, uh, violence that oftentimes leads, say, uh, whites in Texas to view um, uh, Mexican Texans with a lot more suspicion. Um, the, the, uh, uh, you, you do have you know, lynchings of, of Mexican Texans by white Texans in that border region. Uh, the Texas Rangers involved in some pretty horrific scenes of violence against uh, Mexican Texans during that, that period of the Mexican Revolution. So it's uh, that, that, that border definitely becomes much more of a um, a bloody region during the uh, 1910s than it had been in the uh, the decades before when it had been I, I would hesitate to say stable but definitely much more stable than it would be uh, at that time wow uh, I uh, I read a bit about the uh, the Mexican Revolution as it happened in Mexico so it it, it it's fascinating to hear about how all the spillover effects uh, that it had into the border regions. Um, you mentioned uh, the hostility of white 
um, Texans. And I thought I might uh, just ask, to, ask a bit because we know uh, that not all of the Texans in America, in, in tech, not in, not all of the whites in Texas were uh, Anglo's or men, men and women of British descent. Uh, some of them, and I'm sure you'll tell me soon, uh, came from Germany uh, in also in, uh, from various places, uh, including uh, one particular uh, one particularly famous guy, a fellow named Admiral Nimitz. What was uh, their attitude to all the political uh, changes and continuity and issues uh, uh, we've been talking about? And were they substantial enough to have an effect on any of it? Uh, yeah, the German Texans, that's a, they're an interesting group to, uh, to look at. They, they first really began to, to settle in um, central Texas, think south and, and west of Austin, west of San Antonio, down in uh, what we call the hill country region, because it's pretty hilly. Um, and uh, many of them um, you know, settled there starting in the, the 1840s and 1850s. Um, and uh, you know they're definitely set apart, right, from the from the rest of, of Texans at the time, because you know in the 1840s and 1850s, the uh, m the vast vast majority of whites in Texas are of uh, you know Anglo descent and um, you know, from the British Isles, and so then you have this pocket of of Germans setting up camp there in uh, central Texas, and uh, what we see is that. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I, I think that at least when it comes to things like the Civil War, uh, a lot of times their differences could be exaggerated. Yes, you know, the, there were a lot of German uh, uh, Texans who were strong Unionists throughout the war, and many of them paid the price, you know, dearly with their lives for that. Uh, many of those Germans, you know, coming from a country that really had no... Um, you know, heritage of slavery. Many of them were uh, appalled, found slavery abhorrent. Um, but you, you do have German Confederates. You do have uh, German Texans who are slave owners. Definitely a minority among the German Texans, but, you know, they're, they're still there. Um, but, but German Texans are definitely seen as kind of, you know, uh, set apart from the rest of, of white Texans. Um, and, uh, you know, what you see is many of them uh, you know, find ways to hold on to their uh, to their traditions, their language, their culture. You know, it, it, it's it German Texans have their own uh, German language newspapers. You know, many of them established uh, German language schools. Um, you know, obviously they hold on to many of their uh, culinary and brewing traditions and things of that nature. So uh, Texas Germans, you know, definitely do try to hold on to that. Uh, German heritage, their German culture for, for quite some time. That doesn't necessarily mean they're insular. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean they don't participate in, in broader political and civic life. Um, you know, for example, you do see German Texans a lot of times in the in the postbellum years and then, the, you know, the, this Gilded Age era, we do see them uh, oftentimes um, being active in uh, the Republican Party in the state. Uh, the German Texans being uh, uh, one of the uh, you know, few you know, white groups who might you know, find themselves Republicans at this time in this period of, of democratic uh, dominance of state politics, you know, so they do have an outlet there. Um, you know, they uh, you know might be active in say um, San Antonio politics because you do have you know a, a, a sizable German population in the in the city of San Antonio there, so they're able to kind of be active in, in local politics there, um, you know, but at the same time, again, um, they're not necessarily in position to really uh, sway politics one way or another. Um, they are, they um, are definitely um, in the minority numerically, uh, in the minority politically, and um, they for many many decades, see themselves as uh, as very you know set apart. You know, you fast forward into the 20th century, and you look at, say, someone like Lyndon Baines Johnson, right, who is uh, born there in the in the Texas Hill Country, and 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 lives his uh, uh, early years living in the Texas Hill Country. You know, you, if you look at his uh, biography, you'll you'll see that he. Um, 
is living in an area where there's still a lot of uh, of strong German identity among these uh, people that uh, Lyndon Johnson is is neighbors with. And you know, it's interesting when you think about it because these are people whose you know, you know families may have uh, immigrated to Texas you know 60, 70 years before. Uh, yet the German identity is still uh, very strong. And German identity is very is strong enough for Texas Germans to where, you know, by the time we get to um, you know World War One or at least American entry into World War One, uh, German Texans are definitely going to be looked at with some suspicion that uh, they may you know be um, Texas born, Texas raised, but they are German, and they're going to have to go above and beyond in the eyes of their fellow Texans to prove their loyalty to uh, the United States. So, you know, they're definitely still seen by the rest of white Texans as, as uh, in some ways, um, set apart. Okay. Uh, I think that that is more than a sufficient interview, uh, certainly for the, the purposes of this episode, was to provide a survey. And I, uh, I hope to eventually uh, bring uh, bring you back on for perhaps a more in-depth look at the various aspects of the Texas in this period. Dr. Brian Cervantes, thank you very much. You provided uh, myself and I hope also my listeners a very interesting, very thorough uh, discussion of what sounds like a very uh, culturally, not just economically, uh, important state in this period. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed uh, participating in this, and I, I'm glad that I got to share a lot of this uh, with you and your listeners, and I look forward to uh, further opportunities to uh, talk more uh, Texas history with you. Thank you so much.